Thank you all for connecting with us, not only in worship, but through your giving. As you know, Hurricane Irma wreaked a lot of havoc in the Gulf Coast and Louisiana and other places. Many people are still without power. But I think you ought to also know that the Florida Baptist Convention disaster relief teams have already been deployed. And you say, I didn't know we had disaster relief teams. We do. And they go and provide uh, meals and water and blankets and supplies. Most of all, they take the hope and the good news of Jesus. And that's made possible through your giving. Every weekend, whenever you give to our church, we take over 10% of that and send it away through our mission endeavors, including disaster relief. And so one of the best ways and easiest ways to make a difference in our world is through your partnership with us in giving. And I want to thank you for that. And uh, so why don't you, if you're online today or if you have your phone today, you can go online, give safely and securely through our online giving portal, and uh, every penny will be used for ministry and missions. Thank you so much for that. We're starting a new series today, and I want to begin by by running the risk of being labeled Captain Obvious, I'm going to make a statement that I don't think anyone will push back on. I think you'll say, I got up this morning for that. I already knew that. But I'm going to make the statement anyway. Dire circumstances will test your faith in God. Dire circumstances will test your faith in God. And they are going to come. I mean, you think about the headlines of the last six months in our nation and around the world, and you will see a few examples of dire circumstances. We, we have seen a pandemic that has swept people's lives with sickness and overcrowded hospitals, deaths, and political division. We've seen headlines of 13 brave servicemen killed by terrorists in Afghanistan as they were seeking to help and to rescue others. We see social unrest and division in greater ways than we ever thought we would. We look at the headlines and we see an economy that in some ways still feels a little uncertain because of all of the trauma of the last few years. And of course, those are just a few of the national headlines. If some of you were writing your own personal headlines, you would talk about a marriage that is disintegrating before your eyes. Or you would talk about dealing with the grief of losing a loved one in death. Or you would talk about your fear and your anxiety of raising children in such an uncertain world. There were all kinds of problems and difficulties and pains that come into your life that maybe never make the news, but they're real to you. And let's just be honest, dire circumstances can cause even the most ardent follower of Jesus to question, where's God in all of this? To question, God, where are you? God, why aren't you doing something? God, I feel helpless and hopeless, and I don't know what to do. And if you've never been there as a follower of Jesus, I am proud and I'm grateful. I'm going to encourage you to enjoy that moment, but it's just a moment there's going to come a time in your life, too, that it seems the very foundation under you has been shaken and you don't know what to do next. I'm not saying I wish that on you. I'm just saying that is kind of the world we live in. We live in a world full of pain and problems. 
Now, of course, we all know the verses, don't we? And we seek to hang on to those verses that remind us that God is not absent, but sometimes he feels silent and he feels inactive and maybe even a little indifferent to what we're going through. But in those moments when God seems silent and inactive, we have to be reminded that he is always working behind the scenes to accomplish his plan. In fact, in those moments when we think God is silent, it is really an opportunity for us to trust Him more. One of the verses that I always cling to is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that reminds us that we've got a God who makes all things work together for good. doesn't mean all things in your life are good, but He can make all things work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. He does love me. He does have a purpose. He does have a plan. And I have to hold on to that promise. I have to hold on to the promise that He is good even when my life is not good. I have to remember that He has a plan even when it doesn't make sense to little old me. And I've got to learn to trust Him. And so even in those moments, I say, okay, I'm going to trust God during these dire circumstances, and I'm going to keep my faith in God, but what does that mean to trust God? Do I just sit back passively and just do nothing? Is that what it means to have faith in God, to trust in Him? Or is faith active, not passive? Because we want to know, now what? I'm trusting God, but now what? What do I do now? And what do I do when I don't know what to do? Well, I've got good news for you today. You're not the first one to face dire circumstances. You're not the first one to feel that God is silent and inactive. You're not the first one to feel like things are going from bad to worse. You're not the first one to feel, I've got to keep my faith in God, but I don't know what to do next. Now what do I do? The good news is the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were in that same position where they had to ask, now what? Now what do we do? We want to keep our faith in God, but we don't know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And we're going to go to the book of Exodus, and today we're starting with chapter 1. And we're going to find the answer to the question, now what? Here in Exodus chapter 1. And the same answer that... uh, they found is the answer that God wants me and you to find today for our dire circumstances, for our troubled times. So if you have your Bible, why don't you open it up or turn it on to uh, Exodus chapter 1. It's an easy book to find in your Bible. It's the second book from the beginning. You got Genesis and then you got Exodus. As a matter of fact, let me set the stage for what we're going to read today. Exodus is the continuation of where we left off in Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's why it's called Genesis, beginnings. And it's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of this world God created. It's also telling us the beginning of where sin came into our world and how God chose to redeem us through his Savior that he would one day send. Whatever we Last year, looked at the life of Joseph of the Old Testament. If you recall, we were in the book of Genesis. And we, we, we ended that series with Joseph in Egypt. And bringing the family of Joseph, the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob into Egypt. And now whenever we pick up in the book of Exodus, we pick up where we left off. Now we've got the children of of. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in Egypt. Now we know how they got there. 
We get, they got there because of that story we read and we talked about in the story of Joseph. And by the way, if you missed any of those messages, I tell you, it'd be great to go back and listen to those. They're on our website. I don't get a royalty fee for any of that. I'm just telling you, do yourself a favor. Go back and uh, search on our website, uh, Plot Twist, the story of Joseph. That was what the whole series was called. And you'll see this is where we're picking up today. Here in Exodus, we find the Hebrew people in Egypt, but things have turned sour for them. Once they were welcomed in Egypt, now they are despised in Egypt. Once they had positions of power in Egypt, now they are becoming slaves in Egypt. About 350 years has passed since Joseph died. And now we pick up here in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. You say, we'll never get through this chapter, Ricky, if you do this every verse. Uh, but just hold on. I just feel like I need to stop at least with verse 1 because I want you to see the names that are mentioned here. Israel and then Jacob. That's actually the same person. This is Jacob. His name meant trickster. You couldn't always trust Jacob. Sometimes Jacob would shade the truth. Sometimes he was self-centered, all about himself. But there came a moment when he wrestled with God and God broke him. And God changed him. And God changed his name. And God called him Israel, which meant prince of God. So he went from being a trickster to the prince of God. Can I tell you, I don't care what your past is and what your past hang-ups are. We've got a God who specializes in new beginnings. Amen? Aren't you grateful for that? So I wanted you to understand, uh, Israel and Jacob, this is the same person. And, and we're about to read the names of Jacob's sons and Abraham's grandsons who moved from the land of Canaan to Egypt. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Verse 2. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Verse 3. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Verse 4. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. Verse 5. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph, too, was one of the sons of Jacob. Jacob had 12. Joseph was already in Egypt. Look at verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. They died. They left the scene. Fast forward 350 years in time and we come to verse 7. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The land of Egypt, filled with the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Joseph, filled with the Hebrew people. Chances are now there are about a million and a half to two million Hebrews living in Egypt now listen, you can't really understand the book of Exodus, and you can't really understand your Old Testament, and you can't really understand the Bible unless you understand the covenant, the promise, the agreement that God made with Abraham. God chose a moon-worshipping Mesopotamian named Abram who lived in 
Ur of the Chaldees, and he says, I'm the one true living God. I want you to leave everything you know, everything you believe, turn from your past, turn from your sin, put your faith in me as the one true living God, and I'm going to take you to a new land, a land of promise, and I'm going to make a covenant with, with you. We read the covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. God said to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is saying, I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you descendants. And through your one descendant that I'm going to send one day, the whole earth will be blessed. You know what God's doing? He's promising Jesus. He's promising the Messiah who would one day come through the lineage of Abraham. This is God's redemption plan. This is God at work behind the scenes. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it seems that he is inactive, he's not. He's always at work accomplishing his plan. By the way, whenever you read the Old Testament, you say, I don't understand all this. Why is this important? I can't keep all these names and dates and places straight. Just keep your eye on the covenant. Whatever you're reading, just keep your eye on the covenant. The Old Testament is the testimony of God choosing a people who were not a people. And he did it out of grace and mercy. Not because he had to or not because they deserved it. And through that people, he was going to redeem humanity through the Savior that one day would be born. And even though the Old Testament people were unfaithful and unbelieving and often idolatrous, God kept his promise. So whenever you read the Old Testament, it doesn't make sense to you, just keep your eye on the promise. Are the people being unfaithful, foolish, dumb, idolatrous? That's okay. God's still faithful. And nothing's going to stop his plan. Nothing is going to thwart what he is up to. So whenever God called Abraham, he responded with marvelous faith. He leaves everything behind, trusts God for a land he's never seen God then reveals himself to Abram when he's 99 years old and without children. And his wife's 90 years old. And God says, I'm going to give you a child. In fact, I'm going to give you many children. And Abram laughed. Laughed. He said, you've got to be kidding. I'm old. And my wife is advanced in years. He was a smart man. He didn't say she was old. He said, she's advanced in years. How is this going to be possible? When Sarah, his wife, heard that God said, you're going to have a child, she too laughed. And yet it was a miracle of God, and God did give them a son named Isaac. And guess what God told them? Name him Isaac, because the name Isaac means he laughs. God got the last laugh in that. So when Abram's 99, Sarah's 90, they get Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob had a favorite son named Joseph. You remember the story plot twist. We talked about how Joseph was hated by his brothers because he was daddy's favorite. And he liked to remind them of a dream that God gave him that one day you will all bow down to me. I'm the runt of the litter. I'm the youngest, but you'll all bow down to me. They wanted to kill him. They thought better of it. They threw him in a pit, eventually sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt as a slave to Potiphar an officer in Pharaoh's army. He ends up in prison when he's accused, falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife. But even in prison, God shows his favor to Joseph and gives him the ability to interpret 
a dream that Pharaoh had that none of his wise people could interpret. And he was so impressed with that that Pharaoh took Joseph out of prison, brought him to the palace, elevated him to second in command over all of Egypt. There was Pharaoh, and then there was Joseph. Amazing. Years pass by. Famine sweeps through the promised in the Middle East as promised by God. And God used Joseph to not only save Egypt, but God used Joseph to save the Hebrew people, his own family. His brothers don't recognize him. It's been 20 years now. They thought he was long dead and gone. They have no clue that the second one in command is actually their brother. And he eventually reveals himself to them. And he tells them in Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To save us. To save the lineage of Abraham. To save the covenant promise that one day through our family, the whole earth will be blessed. Joseph would later tell his brothers, I'm going to die. You're going to stay here in Egypt. But one day God's going to redeem you. And take you out of this pagan land and put you in the promised land. You got to keep your eyes on God. This is not your home. He wanted them to know that. But 350 years have passed by. Now there's a couple of million of them. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. That's a lot of background. I just had to give you all that history, but there's a lot of background there. I wanted you to know how they ended up in Egypt. Verse 8, now there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Didn't know him? Well, you say, well, these guys kept up with history. It's that he didn't regard Joseph. He didn't care what promise had been made to Joseph by the previous pharaohs. He doesn't care what Joseph did during that time of famine 350 years earlier. He doesn't care. In fact, he sees the Hebrew people now as a threat. Look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh was worried there's so many of them. If a war comes, they're going to side with our enemies and fight against us. And they're too mighty for us. It's a threat to our empire. It's a threat to my power. So he comes up with a two-pronged approach to deal with the Hebrew people. The first approach was slavery. He's going to throw them into slavery. Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. By the way, the devil's always discovered that. The more you persecute the people of God, the more God's going to protect and bless. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel going forward. Even right now in Afghanistan, we're hearing early reports that Christians are being persecuted there in the home churches that have been established over the last 20 years. Christians are losing their lives. But I can tell you this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. 
and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But Pharaoh has a second approach to deal with the Hebrews, not only slavery, but genocide. He's going to wipe them out. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these are the ones who helped women in times of childbirth, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Kill every baby boy that is born to the Hebrews. We want to wipe out their ability to multiply, and we want to wipe out a future army that might stand up against us. You kill those baby boys that are born. But here's a key verse in chapter 1. Please don't miss it. In fact, I underlined it in my Bible. Maybe you want to underline it in yours. There's a phrase here that will help you to know what to do when you don't know what to do. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them to do, but let the male children live. Do you hear this key? What's next? What do you do when you don't know what to do? They feared God and disobeyed Pharaoh. I'll tell you what you do when you don't know what to do. You fear God and do the next right thing. That's what you do. You fear God. You reverence Him. You put Him first. He's more important to you than anything or anyone else. And obeying Him is the first priority of your life. You fear God and you do the next right thing. For these Hebrew midwives, it was to fear the Lord and do the next right thing and disobey the king. They're not going to kill these baby boys. Why? Because they feared God. God is the one who says, thou shalt not kill. God is the one who establishes the sanctity of human life. And they would rather stand before a holy God in obedience to him rather than to obey an evil pagan king. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Fear God. Do the next right thing. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? <laughs> verse 19. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, let's just be honest. The midwives aren't telling the whole truth. They're telling a lie to Pharaoh. But you got to cut them a little slack. When you're faced with two sinful choices, you choose the one that is least sinful and that brings the most glory to God. And they lie to Pharaoh. In verse 20, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, here's that phrase again, feared God, he gave them families. He blessed their families because they blessed God's family. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. If 
If the midwives can't do it, then if you see a Hebrew baby boy, you throw him into the river, Nile River, and let him drown. We're going to stop there. We'll pick up there next week because we're going to discover that God is faithful to his promise. And even this new plot for genocide is going to fail. What's the bottom line for us today in these closing few moments? We've already touched on it. What is God saying to do when you don't know what to do? You just fear God and do the next right thing. You just fear God, put him first, reverence God, and do the next right thing. What does it mean to fear God? It means that you love him more than anyone or anything. It's not that you cower in a corner, terrified of God. It means that you are humbled before a holy God, your creator, the one whom you will stand before one day and give an account of your life. But you're also in fear of God because you're overwhelmed with how much he loves you. That's why when Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? He quoted from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. Love God supremely. That's what it means to fear God. It means I want to love him supremely. But remember, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is this, and he now quoted from Leviticus 19. He, he said the second great commandment is you love your neighbor as yourself. Fearing God means you love God supremely and you do the next right thing. And the next right thing never hurts another person. The next right thing only brings glory to God. And for the Hebrew midwives, fearing God meant they had to disobey Pharaoh. What is that next right thing for me and for you to do when we don't know what to do? This last week I was reading a, an article in... Uh, it was originally published in the Huffington Post. I don't read the Huffington Post, but this is where the article originally uh, was written. Uh, Marlo Thomas was interviewing Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox was big in my childhood. My, Michael J. Fox, you know, um, Alex Keaton, uh, you know, in the TV show. And then, of course, most famously for me, he was uh, in Back to the Future. But if you recall, when Michael J. Fox was only 30 years old, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. A debilitating disease. Everyone said, your career's done. Life is over. You need to get ready to die. But he said he chose to not give up. To not quit. Even though he semi-retired in the year 2000, he kept working. But more than that, he started asking himself, what can I do? What can I do? I'm not going to sit here and wallow in misery, he said in the interview. I'm not going to sit here and say, today's terrible, but I sure hope tomorrow's a better day. No, he said, I just took one day at a time. I take the day as it is, and I make the best of it. He established the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Research Foundation, and in just 12 years of doing the next right thing, he raised over $280 million for Parkinson's research. In the article, this is what Michael said. He said, do the next right thing, and then do the next right thing, and that will lead you to the next right thing after that. When you don't know what to do, when you feel helpless and hopeless, that's what you do. 
You fear God and do the next right thing. You can't fix Parkinson's disease in one fell swoop. But what can you do? Well, I can bring some awareness to it. I can maybe raise a little money. For him, that was the next right thing to do. What is it in your life? What does it mean for you to fear God, to love him, to put him first in your life, to trust him And then to do the next right thing. What does it look like for you? Maybe in this situation you find yourself in, for you the next right thing is to go ahead and enroll in school and get that degree once and for all. Stop telling yourself you can't do it. Stop listening to what other people say. Take the next step and enroll. Maybe for you, if you're struggling financially, the next right thing for you to do is to sign up for Financial Peace University that our church offers to help you get out of debt Build a budget, save for emergencies, save for the future, and live a life of financial peace. Maybe that's the next right thing for you to do. Maybe for you the next right thing is to forgive that person who hurt you and wounded you. And rather than living in bitterness and resentment, you turn them over to God. And you say, I'm not going to let them live rent-free in my mind anymore. I release them from that debt. And I put them in God's hands. Maybe for you, the next right thing is to call the marriage counselor. Or the therapist. And find someone you can talk with about what you're struggling with. Maybe for you, the next right thing is to come to one of our support groups. I was in Grief Share last week. I'm, I'm a member. I don't lead it. I'm this there because I needed to be in Grief Share. And I was thinking how much this has helped me, that I've got a support group in this church. Grief Share. There's a group called Divorce Care. There's a group for people who struggle with sexual addictions. There's Celebrate Recovery that helps people with any hurt, habit, or hang-up. There's Financial Peace University. Think about all the support groups this church makes available to this community. Maybe for you the next right thing is to get in one of those groups and to say, I'm not going to just stay where I'm at anymore. Maybe for you the next right thing in fearing God is recognizing that it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this we stand before God in the judgment. And for you the next right thing is to turn from your sin, believe in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You know enough gospel. You don't need another preacher telling you. You need Jesus. Jesus gave his life for you on the cross of Calvary. He rose from the dead on the third day. He offers you his forgiveness and his love and the gift of eternal life. Why would you say no to that one second more? The best thing you'll ever do for yourself and your family and your friends is to give your life to Jesus. Let him into your life. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe for you the next right thing is to get baptized. Go public with your faith in Jesus. You want to get baptized? We'll do it next Sunday. Just let us know. Call the office. Go to our website and sign up for baptism. And let us help you go public with your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm just trying to give you some ideas. I don't know what it is for you. But I know this. God knows. And he'll show you. He's got a next step for you to take. So when you don't know what to do, when your problems feel overwhelming to you, when you feel helpless and hopeless, there is something you can do. Faith is not just sitting on your blessed assurance. Faith is saying, I'm going to fear God and do the next right thing. 
And I'm going to keep walking by faith. Just like those Hebrew midwives did. May not always be popular. May cost you something. May not see the payoff immediately. But you'll never regret fearing God and doing the next right thing. So here's your homework this week. I want you to pray today. I want you to pray, Lord, help me to know and to do the next right thing. Help me to know and to do the next right thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you for this reminder from Exodus chapter 1 that the answer to the question, what next? The answer to the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Is simply fear God and do the next right thing. Take it one step at a time, one moment at a time, one opportunity at a time, one obedience at a time. And we know you will guide us and help us. So, Father, I thank you that we're not helpless. I thank you that we're not hopeless because you're on our side. You have a plan and a purpose. And even when we don't always understand it, your ways or your timing, we can trust you. We can fear you and do the next right thing. Father, would you reveal to us what that is for each of us? Lord, we ask you today, would you help me to know and to do the next right thing. In fact, would you pray that in your heart right now? Would you pray it silently where you are right now, whether you're in the room or you're online? If you're listening to this driving down the road, don't close your eyes, but still pray in your heart. Lord, help me to know and to do the next right thing. In my marriage, in my finances, or in my friendship, or whatever it is that's troubling you today, just go to him. Lord, help me to know and help me to do the next right thing. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And I thank you for being available to me. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you. And we thank you for being a loving, gracious, merciful God. We thank you for this study that we have begun. From bondage to freedom... And we pray that you would help us to experience that in our own personal lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, amen. I love you guys. Please, thank you for being here. If this has been helpful, invite somebody to join you next week.